Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 12, The Rise of the Knights Templar. We speak firstly to all those who secretly despise their own will and desire with a pure heart to serve the Sovereign King, as a knight, and with studious care desire to wear and wear permanently the very noble armour of obedience. And therefore we admonish you, you who until now have led the lives of secular knights in which Jesus Christ was not the cause, but which you embraced for human favour only to follow those whom God has chosen from the mass of perdition, and whom he has ordered through his gracious mercy to defend the Holy Church, and that you hasten to join them forever. The first point of the Latin rule, the Code of the Knights Templar. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast. Last week we covered the conduct of the Republic of Geneva during their witch trials in the 16th and 17th centuries, and how the harsh and unjust hunts led by the Count of Vaduz led to his deposition and arrest, and the establishment of a principality that survives to the modern day. Today, we head away from the early modern period and into the High Middle Ages. This is long before the development of the witch beliefs we have previously covered. The Malleus Maleficarum is two or more centuries away, and Christendom had yet to face witch trials on the level of the Century of Fire. And yet, despite this distance in time, we will find many similarities between our current topic and the witch crazes of previous episodes. I speak, of course, of the destruction of the Knights Templar, a religious military order that, from humble beginnings in the aftermath of the successful First Crusade, became a political, military, and financial powerhouse that attracted wealth and hatred in equal measure. This episode will cover the foundation and life of the Knights Templar, and how their success sowed the seeds of their own destruction. The next episode will examine how their enemies used religious and legal tools to conduct a campaign of state-sanctioned persecution and looting that dismantled the once powerful order in a matter of years. The reason that this is a topic for the history of witchcraft is that many of the accusations thrown at the Templars, the processes of determining their guilt, and the execution of the condemned knights are similar to what we've seen in the early modern era. After the successful First Crusade conquered key cities in the Holy Land from the Seljuk Turks, various so-called Crusader states emerged. Tripoli, Antioch, Edessa, and the Kingdom of Jerusalem being the most powerful and long-lived. With many holy places, including Bethlehem and the city of Jerusalem now open to pilgrimage, Christians from all across Europe made the perilous journey by land or sea to the Holy Land to make their faith known. I use the word perilous for very good reason. Twenty years after the end of the First Crusade, thousands of pilgrims had been robbed and killed during their journey, often by bandits and brigands. It was this bloody state of affairs that led to the formation of the Knights. In 1118, Hugh de Payon, a knight from the Champagne region of France, made his case for an order of knights whose focus would be on protecting the lives and property of pilgrims during their travels. The King of Jerusalem, Baldwin II, and the Latin Patriarch of the city, Warmond, agreed, and de Payon was granted the use of a wing of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem as his base. 
As the mosque was supposedly built over the ruins of the Temple of Solomon, the knightly order took the name the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon, as the order emphasised its poverty in conjunction with its holy purpose. However, most people today, of course, know the organisation as the Knights Templar or Templar Knights, while their contemporaries would often shorten the name to the Temple. This was also the name given to the Knights Citadels that sprung up around Christendom. Of course, the First Crusade was considered victorious in that it had succeeded in seizing a number of important citadels and cities from the infidel, but the Crusader states were little more than a collection of Christian strongholds precariously clinging to the Mediterranean shore. The Muslim powers that these cities had been won from, the Seljuks, were not about to give up their territory, and the entire period of the state's existence consists of a gradual pushback from successive Muslim powers in the region. This perpetual state of war led to the Templars becoming something of a standing army in the Holy Land, and gaining a parallel objective, alongside protecting pilgrims, of fighting the forces of Islam. Very shortly after their establishment, these dual goals gained significant recognition from Western authorities, both clerical and secular. In 1128, at the Synod of Troy, one of the leading figures, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, recommended that the Templars be officially deemed a monastic order, and the Pope agreed. As might be assumed from his title, Saint Bernard was an influential monk of the Cistercian Order, whose achievements range from adjudicating a papal succession crisis, reforming his own monastic order, and calling for the Second Crusade, and after his death he was canonised for his service to the Church. For our purposes, he is most important for his role in the establishment of the Knights Templar. Not only did he lead the charge for official recognition, but Saint Bernard played a key role, along with Despayan, in the drafting of the Latin Rule, a list of 72 clauses outlining the ideal behaviour of a Templar knight. This text expressed what was expected of a member of the Templars, and borrowed heavily from the rules of both Saint Augustine and Saint Benedict, and it covers everything, from their clothing to their diets. I read out the first point at the start of the episode, and this style continues for the other 71 clauses. Knights were expected to wear their white tabards at all times, to eat in silence, to not eat or drink while wearing their tabards. They could not hunt with bird or bow or hound, eat meat more than three times a week, or wear fur or linen not made of wool. Upon entering the order, be it for life or for a fixed term, they were to take a vow of chastity, and were not to allow a woman into the temple, nor touch any woman, be they their own mothers, daughters, or aunts. Children were not to be admitted to the order, instead being advised to return once they were old enough to fight and to make the choice themselves. Not stated in the rule, but something that became the standard for many brothers was the wearing of a beard, to the extent that the order became known as the Order of Bearded Brethren. At the later trials in Paris, of the 230 brothers brought to court, 76 are noted as wearing a beard, with the others having shaved theirs off to either try and avoid detection and arrest, or to show their rejection of the Templar order. As to be expected from a religious order, prayers are of paramount importance, and the rule specifies at what times members should attend the chapel, and how worship should be undertaken. Gifts and correspondence from relatives and secular sources were to be kept with the relevant master, who would decide whether the recipient should receive them or not, with letters being read aloud. 
All of this reinforces the idea that this is intended as a monastic order, one where the prime and only motivation for its members should be the service of the Christian faith. As we will come to see, over the near two centuries of its existence, the Knights Templar would inevitably stray from these strict commandments. But their mission to fight the infidel would remain of singular importance, even until the final evacuation from the Holy Land. So who was actually doing this fighting? Of the rank and file of the order, there were three classes, knights, sergeants, and chaplains. Knights fit the idea that is probably in your head of a warrior in full plate or mail, the white and red tabard showing the cross of Christ, raising his sword and shouting something along the lines of Deus Vult. These were the heavy cavalry of the order, who went into battle with three or four extra horses and two squires to support them. Importantly, the squires were not members of the order, rather they were outsiders brought in for a set period, with most leaving the order after their service, but some went on to enrol in the order fully. The Templars did not provide a knighting service, so for an individual to be a Templar knight, they had to already be knighted, which invariably meant they were from the noble families of Christendom. For those without blue blood that wished to join the order, their role was that of the sergeant. These lowborn members made up the vast majority of the fighting force of the Knights Templar, but there was substantial opportunity for advancement within the ranks. Several of the highest posts in the order were reserved for those of sergeant rank, including the Admiral of the Templar fleet. The rank of sergeants also included the tradesmen and artisans of the order, those with skills as blacksmiths or builders, whose primary role was to manage and maintain the order's armour, weapons and growing material wealth, although they were called upon to fight if need be. Sergeants and squires were not allowed to wear the white of the knights, and instead were given robes of black or brown. The third class were that of the chaplains, the priesthood within the Templar order who tended to the spiritual needs of their brothers. All three ranks of the Templars wore the Red Cross of their fame. Various estimates have been made to the overall size of the order, with Edward Berman suggesting 15 to 20,000 members at their highest point. Of these, perhaps a tenth were actually knights, with the others being sergeants and support staff. With official recognition from the Synod of Troy came official support, and alongside the church tithes designated for the Templars, Christian lords across Europe donated vast wealth to the cause. Upon joining for life, each knight gave up their wealth and inheritance to the order. Immediately after the Synod, the French King Louis VI gifted the order vast tracts of land, and others followed suit. Within two decades of the Synod, the Templars owned significant properties in Castile, Brittany, England, Italy, Germany, and Hungary. In each of these countries, there was a master of the order, the man in charge of all dealings in his relative jurisdiction. There was a strong chain of command, the master had complete authority of his domain, but each master was subject to the orders of the Grand Master. The Grand Master was appointed for life and oversaw both the military affairs in the East and the financial affairs in the West. The Grand Master sent out visitor generals, knights specifically charged with conducting the Grand Master's will, and they had the authority to overrule individual masters. They communicated new regulations, arbitrated disputes, and could have masters removed from office such as their authority. Grand Masters were able to abdicate, but this was unusual. Only two Grand Masters did not die in office, and many lost their lives on the field of battle. 
the act of martyrdom, of dying in battle against heathens and infidels, was embraced by the Templar order. The initial donations from secular and ecclesiastical lords were soon followed by further contributions, and by the time of the Second Crusade, the Templars were incredibly powerful, both militarily in the East and financially in the West. King Louis, the seventh now rather than the sixth, had taken part in the Second Crusade, and had been in attendance at many of its disastrous events, almost being captured near the city of Laodicea. He managed to escape unharmed, largely and by his own admission due to the assistance of the Templar Knights, who he repaid upon his return to Paris with the donation of a large amount of land on the outskirts of the city. Here, the Paris Temple was constructed, a huge citadel consisting of a large central tower surrounded by four lesser towers, along with its own river wharf, and even its own legal jurisdiction and accompanying police force. The Knights Templar had always been a largely French order, and so the Paris Temple essentially became the headquarters of the organisation in the West. This process of the donation or inheritance of land, and the subsequent establishment of a temple, occurred across Christendom. The temples, which were more in the manner of castles than simple civilian or church buildings, became known as the epitome of safety, and were repeatedly used by travelling nobles, kings, and even a pope or two as a safe place to stay. In Paris and London, the temples were used to house the crown jewels and state treasuries on multiple occasions, such was the prestige and trust that the Templars enjoyed. Templar officials even served as unofficial ministers of finance for the French monarchy, and were always willing to finance the French king in whichever war, loan, or marriage dowry he required. This trust was naturally shared by private individuals, and the international nature of the order provided an additional benefit. A pilgrim or merchant could safely deposit their wealth in a temple, receive a letter of credit, travel to their destination, and redeem the letter at a local branch of the Templars. Bear in mind, this was centuries before the Italian banking system, and in spite of the church's condemnation of ursary, that is to say, the accumulation of interest. Of course, the Templars still charged a fee for their services, but instead called this rent, neatly skirting the issue. Templars were almost always welcome at courts as either visitors or advisers, and were well respected at church councils and listened to at diplomatic gatherings. So far, this sounds like the Knights Templar were in a great place financially, politically and militarily, and yet their downfall in the 14th century was swift and brutal. So now, let's point out all the ways the Temple had consistently stepped on everyone's toes, and generally created such an atmosphere of suspicion and distrust that when the time came, half of Europe jumped on the opportunity to destroy them. The foundation of this hostility can be seen as early as 1163. The Templars had been firmly established within Christendom for several decades now, and had played a role in the election of Pope Alexander III, backing him against rival claimants to the Keys of Heaven. The new pope was grateful, and he promulgated a bull which granted the Knights Templar extraordinary privileges. The Templars essentially became an autonomous institution, subject to no king, emperor, or bishop, except for the pope himself. The order's vast holdings and wealth became protected under the rights of the church, effectively exempting them from taxation and creating a significant obstacle to secular or church lords that sought the return of their property. As part of the Holy See, the Templars were given permission not only to construct their own churches, but also to man them with Templar clergy and confessors. For an order which had gained a reputation for secrecy out of military necessity, 
this only fanned the flames of rumour. They could be getting up to anything in those fortresses of theirs, and they don't even need outsiders to confess their sins to. Despite now being an explicitly ecclesiastical order, hostility from other church institutions towards the Templars was heated, and for good reason. Much of the lands the Templars now owned had originally come from the estates of bishops and monasteries, while tithes that would otherwise go to parish priests and monastic orders were significantly reduced. The Templars certainly did not help themselves. Well aware of the rights they now held, the order constantly bullied and overreached themselves with their ecclesiastical neighbours. Tithes that were due to others were requisitioned, as were churches not intended for their use, and clergy that now found themselves under Templar authority could find themselves deposed at the whim of the local master. By removing the Templars from any superior, with the exception of the Pope, they were free to openly show contempt to the bishops they despised, going so far as to give sacraments to people that bishops had excommunicated. But it was not only the theological lords that the Templars rubbed the wrong way. Their strong position in Christendom's finance sector repeatedly conflicted with secular interests. French winemakers, for example, were unable to compete with Templar vineyards, who could sell their produce under market value due to their exemption from tax. Remember I mentioned a Templar Admiral of the Fleet? Well, as you might assume from that title, the Templars had a fleet, which they used to ferry pilgrims from the shores of France and Italy to the Holy Land. Fair enough, you might think. The job of the Templars is to safely escort pilgrims. The problem was, there was already a big business in this. The merchant republics of Italy and the shipping houses of Marseille were both being deprived of income from this profitable industry. Add to the fact that these pilgrim fleets often included trade goods, and you can understand why the naval powers in the Western Mediterranean were not fond of the Templar fleet. Because not only were the Templars rich and powerful, but they were unbearable in their quite literal holier-than-thou attitude. In the words of Norman Cohen, Filled with a conviction of their own superiority, trained to regard themselves as the fighting elite of Christendom, Templars had little sympathy for the suffering of others, and little regard for their feelings or opinions. The Pope himself had to step in after the order sufficiently irritated Henry III of England. Pope Innocent III, who had once been a Templar himself, mind you, issued a bull reprimanding the knights for diverting taxes and tithes due to the monarch commandeering churches that were not theirs, and showing contempt for the king's justice by only hearing his complaints in courts overseen by their own appointed judges. The Knights Templar were a warrior aristocracy, and so the ruthless pursuit of their own interests and their arrogant treatment of their rivals is to be somewhat expected. Yet they had the benefit of privileges and exemptions that their secular neighbours could only dream of. Again, in the words of Cohen, In a dispute with its neighbours, a house of Templars was as capable as any other noble household of employing arson and murder, but it was less likely to be visited with commensurate penalties. In other words, the knights were playing the same game as the rest of noble Christendom, but without many of the same risks, giving them an intolerable advantage and spurring them on to greater transgressions. After a century of existence, the Templars' Latin code was being followed less and less strictly. Remember the restrictions on what to wear, what to eat, and how to entertain themselves? Templars were not meant to wear finery, and limit themselves to only the coarsest linen. They were not to dine extravagantly, nor to go hunting in the manner of secular nobles. Well, with great wealth brings... great hypocrisy. 
the leading members of the order, particularly in the West where it was more prevalent, dressed in the finest clothes and armour, parading around just as magnificently as princes. They took part in and held their own feasts of massive scale, and regularly attended hunts alongside nobles and kings. In all visible respects, the Templars were indistinguishable in their behaviour to any secular aristocracy. The prime difference, however, is that their power came from being a religious order. Their very name, the Poor Fellows, signifies their singular devotion to the service of Christ. Whatever their victories and valour in the Holy Land, for the people in the West, all they saw was rampant corruption and hypocrisy on a massive scale. And yet, while the Templars continued to fight in the Holy Land, while they had something to justify their existence, they were largely untouchable. The endless wars in defence of God's Kingdom of Jerusalem could be pointed to as the reason for their indulgences and their extraordinary wealth. But this state of affairs was not to last. In 1187, the famous Saladin captured Jerusalem for Islam and forced the Templars out of their first temple. This was not the end of the Crusader states, however, and a number of strongholds remained on the coast of the Levant, most notably the city of Acre. Forty years later, in 1229, Jerusalem reverted to the Christians in a treaty that ended the Sixth Crusade, and there was much rejoicing. Only for the city to fall once more, 15 years later, to the Khwarezmians. Now, those with a knowledge of Middle Eastern history might be wondering what on earth I'm talking about. The Khwarezmian Shardom had been destroyed by the Mongols in 1220 after an unfortunate meeting of Mongolian envoys and sharp swords. How could they capture Jerusalem a quarter of a century later? Well, many soldiers of the Shardom remained united as one host, and had been raiding and pillaging the lands of the Seljuk Turks ever since. In 1244, they had been hired by the Ayyubid Sultan of Egypt as mercenaries, and en route to Egypt, they stopped by in Jerusalem. They were in the neighbourhood, they thought they'd drop by and capture a poorly defended city. Jerusalem would remain in Muslim hands until 1917. From here on, the Crusaders were firmly on their back foot. Eventually, in 1291, the city of Acre was captured, and it appears that Templar forces fought largely to the end, with only a few escaping the city to Cyprus. Aside from this small island of Awad, which would remain in Christian hands until being captured by the Mamluks in the 14th century, there were no Christian forces or citadels in the Middle East. After two centuries, the Crusaders had lost. The Templars were now without a cause. Their brethren, the Knights Hospitaller, Knights of Calatrava, and Teutonic Knights each had visible purposes. The Hospitallers had conquered the island of Rhodes, and were holding it as a bastion against further Muslim expansion in the Mediterranean, and fighting Muslim pirates. The Knights of Calatrava, along with the other Iberian orders, were fighting in the Reconquista against the Moors, and the Teutons were carving out their own monastic state in the Baltics, purging and converting the pagans of Lithuania and Poland. While the Templars were, in varying extents, also involved in these causes, they were somewhat at a loose end, and recruitment to the order began to slow. However, this was not an insurmountable obstacle to the further existence of the Templars. They were still vastly wealthy, and with a presence throughout Europe. Their military defeat in the Holy Land was merely a setback, and the order was down but not out. The surviving Templars continued to pay lip service for another crusade to the Holy Land, but did relatively little actual crusading. What this meant was that there was no counterbalance to the dislike of the Templars anymore. 
their cause of defending the Crusader states was over, and the Crusades were no longer a priority for the rest of Christendom, and so their faults came to the fore. Debtors they had lent to did not want to pay them back, courts were unable to convict members of the order, and their presence in a country was something of a worry. After all, they were a highly trained, well-armed standing army, and their brethren were in the process of forming their own states. Why would the Templars be any different? It was into this atmosphere of wariness and dislike that we will now throw King Philip IV of France. Philip IV, Capet, the Fair, the Iron King, ruled the Kingdom of France from 1285 until his death in 1314. His epithet of the Fair is in regards to his looks rather than his judicial balance, and his other epithet, the Iron King, is based on his single-minded determination to strengthen both his own position as well as France as a whole. In negotiations with Edward I of England, he addressed him as his vassal, due to the kings of England also being Dukes of Aquitaine, in flaming relations between the two realms. As a way around this issue, an agreement was reached whereby Edward would voluntarily relinquish his lands in Aquitaine as a sign of submission, and after a grace period, the French king would return them. Edward fulfilled his part of the bargain, but wouldn't you know it, Philip had absolutely no intention of giving back these titles that had just fallen into his lap. They subsequently fought a war, where nothing was lost or gained by either side, and in the peace treaty the English eventually got a claim on the French throne, which would lead to a small thing called the, um, Hundred Years' War? Philip was something of a religious megalomaniac as well, convinced that he was fulfilling God's will. He entertained ideas of combining the Templar and Hospitaller Knights into one body, called the Knights of Jerusalem, which he would lead in a grand crusade to capture the Middle East, become emperor, rule over a united kingdom of multiple nations and creeds, and establish a universal peace in the style of the old Pax Romana. Like I said, farcical. So why am I telling you this? Well, aside from showing you the type of ruler Philip was, it also sets the stage for the destruction of the Knights Templar. War is a frightfully expensive business, and in the aftermath of the conflict with England, Philip had to pay back the loans he had taken from the Jews, the Lombards, and, of course, the first multinational corporation, the Knights Templar. Spoiler alert, he is not going to pay any of it back. The Templars were also an obstacle to his religiously motivated dreams, as they were staunch rivals of the Hospitallers and thoroughly unwilling to consider anything resembling a merger. They had competed with the Hospitallers for wealth, patronage and glory, and this competition had often escalated to outright bloodshed. The idea of a merger was ridiculous. To attempt to recover his financial situation, both the Jewish communities and the Lombard bankers were expelled from France and their property seized in 1306. Philip also attempted to confiscate land from the Catholic Church, something that Pope Boniface VIII was unsurprisingly furious about. Not one to back down, Philip sent his agent to kidnap the Pope and called a council of his bishops to condemn their Holy Father. Boniface escaped the French agent, but died soon after anyway, allowing Philip to arrange for a French Archbishop to be elected to the papacy as Clement V. Of course, Rome was far too far away for the Pope to travel, so the papacy took up residence in the city of Avignon in southern France. The so-called Avignon papacy lasted for almost 70 years, 
where the Pope was essentially a French vassal, subject to the whims of Paris. So now, Philip has a Pope of his own. Next episode, we will go through the brutal and far-reaching destruction of the Knights Templar, as Philip uses both his pocket Pope, as well as the common undercurrent of dislike for the military order, to wipe out the Temple leadership in one fell fiery swoop. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>